prepare to hear the truth from a real whistleblower and American patriot. Here's civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and indefinitely suspended FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hey folks, it's producer Phil back with another episode of Kyle Classics. Kyle's still enjoying his time off during this Christmas season, and we thank you for continuing to tune in over the holidays. Just a reminder, keep those five-star reviews coming in. We appreciate them and read all of them. If you write a nice one, maybe yours will be on the next episode. The Give, Send, Go is still out there. We had a nice message coming in from one of our donors. Scott writes, thank you for your courage and service to our country. God bless you. Well, God bless you too, Scott. We appreciate the help and thanks for donating this holiday season. All right, so to the content, we've got Kyle appearing on the Joe Pags show talk about everything that you've grown accustomed to here on the Kyle Serafin show. And then that will be followed by a appearance by Kyle on his own Rumble channel from several months ago, getting into the reasons why more whistleblowers don't come forward. I think it's complimentary to what he'll discuss on Joe Pags, and you'll also find it interesting. I'll put the link in the description box below so that you can get to that Rumble channel with no problem, and make sure you hit the subscribe button as well as liking all the videos. All right, well, without further ado, let's get to the show. Great to have you along for the ride. Thanks a lot for stopping by. Really glad to have this guy on. He's an FBI uh, whistleblower. His name is Kyle Serafin. He's out there telling the truth about what was happening while he was in the organization. Kyle, first of all, nice to meet you. Uh, good to have you on today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Joe. I do appreciate it. I told you a little while ago, I saw a part of your speech from, uh, from Turning Point USA. Very, very good. Really, really direct and to the point. Um, you guys, when you sign up for the FBI, and how does that even work? Were you a cop first and then you moved your way up? Did you go right to, to the FBI? How does that work anyway? No, my life was kind of a messy story. I started off in corporate sales. Uh, I ended up running a restaurant in Kansas City. Uh, I went and I was a financial analyst at Warner Brothers Movie Studios for about a year and a half. And I uh, felt like I wasn't doing the right thing with my life, that I had some skills that I could apply to something that would matter. So I, um, I left everything and I enlisted in the military. I went into the Air Force at the age of 27. And I did that for uh, just shy of like three and a half years, something like that. I left just a little bit early for my four-year enlistment. And uh, I became a paramedic, and I did that for a little bit, too. And when I got out of the Air Force, I signed up to, to see if the FBI would take me. It's kind of a convoluted process. It takes about two years and change. So I ended up going and, and swearing it at Quantico in the summer of 2016. Um, at the, uh, about 35 years old, I was almost 36 at the time. Wow. Uh, again, it's Kyle Serafin, K-Y-L-E is his first name. Last name is S-E-R-A-P-H-I-N. Go and follow him everywhere. It's Kyle Serafin together on Twitter, on Truth, on YouTube, all over the place on Rumble. So go and find him there. Uh, you, you said swearing in, and that's what I wanted to go to. You literally yep. swear to uphold what the Constitution says. And the Constitution is a, a document that doesn't outline our rights. It's a document that tells the government what it can't do. Our rights are given by the creator. And you agreed to that and you did that. Yes. And then you, yeah, found, the it, and then you found out that the FBI d doesn't really believe in that. That's true. Yeah. So, I mean, the Constitution is a leash for the federal government. Yes. That's what it is. It's a, it's a set of restrictions. It tells them exactly where they can go. It should be a leash and a collar. And when, when you swear, you know, you, you swear to uphold the God-given rights that people have, protect the government from infringing upon those, and protect everyone else from infringing upon those people as well. That's what the enforcement end of law enforcement is. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's not a hard decision, um, but, uh, you know, it, it can cause difficulties if your agency has decided to go in a way that doesn't make any sense. Right. And when, you, when did you sign up? What year was it? So I originally swore in uh, in 2006 into okay. the delayed entry program to be enlisted. 20, uh, 2007, I went into the Air Force, uh, active duty, and then I, I went into the 
the uh, FBI in 2016. So that was like the fourth time I swore in. I think you do it a couple times when you're in the Air Force, uh, when you're active duty. So, you know, I, I swore in and, and it's, you know, protect and defend and uphold the Constitution. And that includes all the Bill of Rights, which I think are really important. And if we're not following the letter of the law, if we're not doing the spirit of what we're intended to do, then uh, then you're moving into a very dangerous ground. You're violating the oath that you swore. And I don't I'm not party to that. Uh, by the way, my father was Air Force. so I've got a great affinity for the Air Force. So I appreciate your service there. When you sure. when you swear in, uh, you don't realize that the government doesn't intend for you to actually uphold all of that because there's a part of the Constitution that you swear and you're going to protect um, uh, the Constitution and our rights from all enemies, foreign and domestic. They really don't right. mean domestic, do they? They, they decide who the domestic terrorists are and who the domestic bad guys are. And if you're working for the domestic bad guys that are, stu- that, that are trampling on the Constitution, I guess they want you to ignore that. Well, um, you know, I'm, I'm friends with a guy you had on previously. I believe you had Steve Friend on. Had on last week, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Steve and I have this kind of uh, this, this belief that some people swear allegiance to the FBI when they go into the FBI. Um, I, I didn't agree to that. That's not the terms of my service. Um, but a lot of people defend the agency over the Constitution. That is an expectation that some people have. And um, the people that believe that the agency is right above all else, they're really creating a, a really dangerous scenario yeah. where, you know, that, that's a lawless scenario because we have to believe in principles. We didn't swear to a regime. I didn't swear to a president. I didn't swear to a director or any attorney general. They can come and go. The oath is, is eternal in a lot of ways. And, and one of the famous things people always say is like, you know, the oath doesn't expire until you do. So it doesn't even matter if I'm working that job. Like, I believe that's my responsibility um, as a citizen and, and as a father and as a husband. Like, well, after I'm going to be an agent, which is probably not going to happen anymore. But right. it's a possibility they have to bring me back in some circumstance. Um, it's it's pretty straightforward, you know, once you look at it that way. He's an FBI whistleblower, Kyle Seraph, and go follow him everywhere. His first and last name put together. There's a piece of video on your Twitter that I watched a little while ago that when you when you join the FBI, you've got to go to the Holocaust Museum. Is that something that they do for everybody? Everybody's got to go? Yeah, I don't know how long it's been going on, but it's been going on for at least a decade, maybe two decades, something like that. Uh, it's gone back a pretty good ways. Tell people the purpose, if you don't mind, because it really does go to what's the most important thing, what it is that you're protecting, what it is that you're being aware of that's around. If you don't mind, tell people why they, they send you there. Sure. I, I thought it was one of the most impactful days of my professional life. I'm about to turn uh, 41 years old this week. So, you know, I've, I've had some professional life experience and, you know, more than anything I did in the military, more than anything I've done in, in the civilian world, going to the, uh, the Holocaust Museum, they teach you essentially what went wrong in Nazi Germany that allowed that to continue. And so the only way that you get the Holocaust is by having uh, local officials that you have federal, state, and uh, local law enforcement, you know, sign up with the program, minor federal officials in the area, you know, state officials, going and rounding up the Jews. They all had to say yes, because it needed a huge machine in order to enact that that injustice that happened. Without having that sign off, you know, the people that had the guns and the badges and the, and the authority to go do so, then you couldn't have a Holocaust. So they're really teaching you why the regular population of 1930s Germany was the issue. You know, it's not like the, the, we didn't start at death camps, right? We started right. off by identifying and othering is what they would call it in the kind of the, uh, you know, the the uh, social worker type world, you know, creating a, an us and a them. Yes. And when they started doing that, like that's how you go and you get rid of your neighbor that someone ends up killing off your neighbor. Uh, we wouldn't start right with that. We have to start with, you know, making them wear a badge and show who they are, that they're different. And so that was very impactful for me. And, uh, you know, when the COVID sort of tyranny, which I'm kind of calling it, you know, started being enacted, 
I'm not saying that people who were discriminated against by the federal government were like the Jews in the Holocaust. I'm saying that the people who said yes to all that tyranny were like the Nazis. And that's a very specific, you know, differential. Uh, and I still believe that. And the point you make, Kyle, is that had anybody stood up for what was right, Nazi Germany may ne- never have happened. Well, Nazi Germany happened, but the Holocaust may never have happened. Uh, the, the attempt right. to take over the entirety of Europe and then eventually Asia would never have happened in the mind of, of Hitler. Somebody, but somebody, could have stepped up and stopped them. Now, if it's one person, they might kill that person and get them out of the way. But if it's a group of people who say, wait a second, this is inherently wrong, they really could have stopped it and history would have been different. That's really your point. It is. And you know what? America has shown that we don't have any better ability to resist this sort of thing than anybody else. Um, We're seeing it over and over again. So many people think the same way that I do. I had a supervisor tell me, look, I'd love to stand with you. And I I think what what they're doing to you is wrong. And yet I've got alimony. I've got a mortgage. I've got people I got to support. So I got to keep doing this. You know, I have no problem with anybody going to get shots that that they think protect them against COVID. I, I would disagree with them. I've got 10 years as a paramedic that says that that doesn't seem to be the definition of vaccines that I believed in, right. that I was taught about. Um, you know, I, I took a lot of classes in microbiology and anatomy, physiology, you name it. But um, if you're going to go get that, so be it. But if you're going to tell me that I have to get it, then I disagree with you vehemently. Right. And I think the clearest example of America not willing to stand up, it, it happened not long ago in North Carolina. Uh, the guy's name escapes me, but he stood up in a federal courthouse and said, I'm not going to wear a mask. It wasn't a federal, sorry, it was a state courthouse. Yeah. And uh, and nobody else stood up with the man, and he went to jail by himself. If 100 jurors in that in that jury pool said, I'm not going to wear a mask, it's illogical and it's unethical for him to make him do it, that guy doesn't go to jail. I think the judge says, like, maybe I'm mistaken. So it's when you have single stand-ups, they can, they can get one of them. But they can't get all of us. We all have to stand up at the same time. Yeah, exactly right. It's Kyle Serafin. Go and follow him everywhere. The last name is S-E-R-A-P-H-I-N. He's an FBI whistleblower. Uh, you couldn't be more correct. I'm not vaccinated because, A, they're not a vaccine. Uh, B, right. uh, if somebody told me to do it, I would laugh at them because I've interviewed Dr. Malone, who invented the technology. I've interviewed Peter McCullough. I've interviewed Dr. Urso. I've interviewed Tom Renz, the lawyer who's out there fighting all these fights. And we know that mRNA is not something that we should be playing around with. We also know that people are dropping dead because it causes blood clots. Now they're actually admitting that the Pfizer shot does, in fact, have some blood clotting. Myocarditis is involved. Why would I ever take that? I'm 56, I've had COVID twice, and I've laughed it off because I took ivermectin. So at the end of the day, when you're trying to force somebody to do something, this really is a mass formation psychology or psychosis that's being forced upon us, which is exactly what happened in Nazi Germany, which is exactly how people live in China today or North Korea today. How close are we to becoming that? Are you? Do you fear that we're becoming that? Or... Are there really 50% of us like you and me who are standing up and bringing the truth? I, I think 50% of the people uh, think they they believe in the same sort of things that I do. But right. I'm not 100% confident that everybody is willing to sign up and take on the personal discomfort. So right. that's kind of the, that was the purpose of the speech that I gave when I was at Turning Point. You know, um, everybody's got two options. And my buddy always says you can prepare or you can repair. He talks about physical fitness, your health, the, right. whatever you want to name it. Let's get your car, right? Prepare or repair. You got two choices. And uh, in the case of looking at our Constitution, I think you have that same choice. You can prepare to defend it. You can decide that what your line is right now, today, before anyone puts you to a decision for all those chips. Or you can try to backpedal and figure out where your line is after you've already crossed the line you shouldn't have stopped at. We're at the last hill in a lot of ways. That's my belief. Yeah. Um, that's, the, that's the line that I drew for my children and, and for my wife and for my family. And so I encourage people to look, decide that they are done they are done compromising. You cannot comply your way out of tyranny in any way, shape, or form. And when you make that decision in advance, it's way easier to enact that decision when you're put to the t- decision. If you haven't already decided, you got to do it now. Like today is the day. 
figure it out, figure out your line. This I will not cross, and then do not cross it. You under any circumstances. You can it, it may be painful. You cannot comply your way out of tyranny. That might be the best line I've heard this month. And it's a very good one. If you really break that down, it's so true. The more you agree, the more they control you. You're not agreeing right. of, of your own free will. You're agreeing because of the false information that you've been given. It's Kyle Serafin. He's a, an FBI whistleblower. Follow him on all the social media. Follow his Rumble. Follow his YouTube. You do have a YouTube as well as Rumble, right? Yes, sir, I do. Okay. Um, I want to talk about the FBI. I always thought it stood for the Federal Bureau of Investigation. At what point did the FBI become some sort of a covert intelligence agency? Um, after 9-11. It's pretty concrete, the uh, the answer. that The FBI took what I would say is the wrong lesson. But I it never it was, was right? Of- Kyle, before that, it never was. It was just that you investigate crime. It was always there. There was always a small group of people. I mean, if you look, the FBI's got sins in every decade, if we're going to be really honest about it. Okay, they were going after communists in the 30s and the 40s. It was a Red Scare. There was a, you know, a push against the civil rights leaders in the 50s and the 60s, right. uh, the coin intel pro stuff. There's a lot of sins that exist in the FBI, if we are being true about what it is. But I think it was the, the reason it got away with it is because it was ideologically aligned with a majority of Americans. And so they were able to kind of uh, whitewash that and make it feel like it was pro-America, even if it was anti-Constitution. So I've got issues with the way they did a lot of that. But becoming a truly intelligence agency first is a 9-11 phenomenon, post 9-11. Director Mueller and George Bush apparently had a summit at uh, Camp David and they came up with its decision. So if you look in the DIOG, that's the Domestic Investigations Operations Guide, that's the Bible of how you do your job as an FBI agent and and an employee. Um, they list the FBI as an intelligence agency first. Wow. And so if you're not aware of that, if that's not that they're a, a intelligence agency with a law enforcement capability, that's incredibly dangerous. Yeah. And um, and it leads you to the sort of secret police Stasi thing that people are always implicating. It only happens when they have that intelligence agency capability. Both they've got the tools and they have ways to open up cases like I can open a case on you, Joe. I could open a case on me easily. I'm an easy problem. Right. Um, there's just a certain number of criteria that they have to be met, and they can open a full intelligence investigation, which unlocks national security resources. There has to be zero. There's no requirement for, for allegation or information that a federal crime has happened in order to open a case on somebody. They could open you up as a potential victim um, of, of you know, some intelligence agency working against you. And by doing that, they can open up all the tools. They can get your bank records. They can use what are called national security level letters, their NSLs, and they can, those are just secret subpoenas that they, they, that signed off on internally by the FBI, like the SAC of an office, the top guy or girl can literally sign their name and get your phone records, your, you know, who you're spending your money with, all this kind of stuff. Wow. And that's, that's an intelligence agency, but they also have a criminal prosecution ability. And when you have those two sort of sides of the coin and they can, they can pass information. Once you know something, you can't unknow it. Right. It, so it, it's stunning. Well, l- l- let me let me just throw this out there. There are supposed to be boundaries. There were supposed to be and there was supposed to be oversight. And it turns out there, there's very little oversight when the Democrats run things. Do you hope yeah. that the Republicans will do some oversight? Will they sit you down and Steve Friend down and have you testify in open court and let all of us see or an open hearing, not really court, but open hearing in front of Congress and let us see exactly right. what it is that, that you're blowing the whistle about? Will, will something happen? Or, or, or not, Kyle? Do you think that we're taking the right steps, at least getting the House back? Um, that's obviously a good step. I'm, um, I'll say hopeful, yeah. but I'm not necessarily, but I'm also a realist. I know that uh, historically that's not been the case, that we don't often do things. And, and, and I say we as people who love liberty, who are, you know, I'm not a, a Republican explicitly. I'm, I'm a libertarian type. I, I just love American freedom. Right. I'm down with anybody, whatever position they want. I, I always tell people I'm kind of like politically a 20 guy, a nice regular guy from 20 years ago, right in the middle. <laughs> right. Um, now I'm on the left. I mean, now I'm on the right because the, the Overton with, with shifted so dramatically. Exactly right. But uh, essentially, 
you know, I, I talked to uh, uh, Representative Thomas Massey the other day on a Twitter spaces in front of like a lot of people. Nice. And, uh, and I gave him some ideas and encouragement that I think that the right move is that they need to make sure that the FBI director does not leave without answering questions. That when he says it's our policy not to talk, um, that doesn't matter because it's his policy. Like, like he's the director. He can change that with the stroke of a pen. Right. They really need to put their feet to the fire. My worry is that they get distracted by shiny objects like the Hunter Biden laptop, that they decide to go after the easy, low-hanging fruit of you know corruption within the Biden administration, even if they were to, say, remove Joe Biden from office. And I'm not sure that's a great idea one way or another at this point, yeah. because we end up with a vice president that has the same ideology, possibly worse. Right. Um, they're going to be able to appoint a new vice president. So what do we get from there? Nothing. But in the meantime, me and my family are still without work. Um, we're still without a paycheck. I was suspended in June. On June 1st, I stopped getting a paycheck. So, um, and you know, and Steve Friend has been a little bit behind me on that curve. There's a, there's several others that people's names are not public, but they have had the same treatment. Um, there was recently a, a, a judicial wash. They uh, they talked about a guy that was fired for conspiratorial views, which is nonsense. Um, you know, you have a First Amendment right, even when you're an FBI agent or yes. employee, to have certain views. Um, you don't have to express them at work, but like saying that you think that January 6th wasn't an insurrection, that should be totally legal. As a like, reasonable people can disagree about what the fact pattern means. And if we can't have that disagreement, then we're looking at totalitarianism. And it's really dangerous. Not having a paycheck since June, um, uh, it, it means to me that you were ready to take some pain for blowing the whistle and telling the truth about the FBI. But uh, I'm guessing you didn't think that it would last this long. A and you do want to hear something from Jim Jordan and Matt Gates and, and McCarthy, if he becomes the speaker, that we're going to take this up, we're going to make it public, and we're going to make sure that that you're vindicated for just telling the American people the truth. Are you getting any, any indication from any of them individually or not? Um, I was told by a friend of mine in, in my congresswoman's office, who's outgoing right now, that uh, we were too politically hot to touch. Wow. Um, if that's the case, then this this country is lost in a lot of ways, and they're not going to get another whistleblower out of my agency for a long time. So, you know, it's very easy. And I've made this, I, I actually talked to James O'Keefe at Project Veritas right. for a long time about, you know, the, the push is very straightforward. What, what the guys need to do on the Judiciary Committee is write that letter saying that they expect every single whistleblower, they can name us all, it doesn't matter, the FBI already knows who we are that they need to be reinstated with pay, back pay, and uh, and paid. And, and I'm not confident that I'll continue to work for that agency. They stabbed me right in the back, and I'd right. be waiting for the next shoe. But they need to pay us for what we did, for showing up. They need to basically obey and let, let us resign if that's our choice. And if people want to keep working, they need to stay. And they need to be protected from retaliation. It needs to be put in writing. And then they need to follow through on it. They can put that letter out on, on January 3rd when they take the gavel. And uh, it may take them a couple of weeks to, to organize and do the hearings. So be it. But uh, then they need to follow through if the FBI doesn't want to do the right thing. And there's a decent chance they won't because the FBI likes to they like to moonlight as a, you know, the thing that they are. But th they're not really interested in uh, protecting the American people in a lot of ways. And don't, don't get me wrong. There are plenty of agents that do. Yeah. There are lots of really good people that I know, but they're not the majority of the people making policy at this point. So the FBI protects the FBI. That's what it does. Well, we're gonna, we're gonna uh, hopefully we can help uh, uh, put some feet to the fire as well. We've got representatives on here all the time; they want to come back. I want you to come back yep. if you don't mind. We barely scratched the surface, and we burn through all the time. Uh, will you come back, Kyle? Absolutely. Yeah. You tell me when. It's Kyle Serafin. Go and follow him on all the social media. Get his YouTube. Get his Rumble. Get all of that. Uh, FBI whistleblower. And we're back after this. Stay right here. Good morning. Welcome, friends. Welcome, patriots. It is Monday, October twenty fourth. And I am Kyle Serafin. I'm a former FBI special agent. I guess I've been indefinitely suspended, but since I have no expectation of the FBI bringing me back, I'm going to go ahead and go with that. Um, some of you are following me on my different handles. That's the same one for Truth or for or for Twitter. And um, what I wanted to do is discuss something in a longer format that doesn't give itself too limited number of characters. 
And this is going to be a story that I saw on Fox News a couple days ago. It's the story of Greg Hahn, H-A-H-N, I believe is his name, a gentleman in North Carolina. I've read that he was a Navy veteran, and I think that's probably part of why this went on. He was in a courtroom, and he was asked by a judge who was not wearing a mask to put on a, a mask. I guess it sounds like his situation was a little bit more contentious than that, but we'll go with the basic story. Um, and his jury room was not completely empty when he went up there. But it sounds like he's the only one who chose not to comply with what I think is probably an illogical, um, even if it is a technically legal requirement that this judge was putting out. And uh, for his troubles, he was sent to jail for the night in contempt of court, which I guess is the way things work when you decide to stand up. What I want to discuss is why that's related to a question that my friend, um, also former FBI special agent at Phil Kennedy, um, posed and and his his answer as well and i think they're all related to each other so we're going to kind of unpack what that means so what phil said was i keep reading why aren't more fbi agents coming forward here's the sad truth the left does a much better job of taking care of their own andy mccabe's legal defense fund raised 500k in four days mccabe struck page etc landed huge book deals and cushy jobs on cnn georgetown and msnbc meanwhile conservatives lose their paycheck their security clearances, spouses' employments, social media accounts, and GoFundMes. They also suffer FBI retaliation in violation of fundamental whistleblower laws. I think these two things are related. And I think they're related because what it shows us is that in this country, people who believe the way that I do and people who are looking down the barrel of uh, government tyranny and looking at um, potential workplace tyranny they haven't made their mind up what they're going to do before the question is posed to them. And so I'm going to bring this to kind of a thing that many people probably who are following this or might be watching this can relate to. And that's going to be uh, basic military training. And if you haven't been through it, you've seen a video of what it looks like. There's people yelling at you. There's simulated weapons being fired. There's real weapons fired. There's throwing of explosives. There's troop movements. Uh, there's drill. Um, there's a very ordered and rigid experience of life. And it doesn't matter whether you went through one of the real more aggressive, um, you know, basic trainings in the Marine Corps or the Army, or if you went through something like I did in the Air Force, which I thought was um, very gentle. The, the goal is the same. And this is also the same thing for men, uh, men and women who went through a law enforcement academy. Most of them are sort of paramilitary structured. So there's a lot of yelling. There's a lot of uh, paying for your mistakes with some sort of physical, physical um, training, things like that. And, and what is the purpose behind all that? Why do people go through these trainings specifically to go into combat arms professions, into jobs where you may have to be engaged in violence? And, um, and we'll even add not just violence, but decisive action is probably the most important piece of it because it actually does go further than just getting physical with somebody else. And uh, the, the basic reason that was always explained to me is a thing called stress inoculation. And stress inoculation is used in many different theaters uh, in our lives. It's a basic and fundamental uh, tactic that can be used in uh, mental health counseling. Uh, my wife is a, uh, a certified counselor, and she has used this sort of thing in cognitive behavioral therapy. It's one of those types of tools that just never really loses its usefulness. And the reason why is... You can do it not just with simulations, not just with the aggressive running and, and teamwork and uh, physical training and so on that goes along with uh, military and law enforcement, but you can also actually do it with mental exercises where you prepare yourself for potential scenarios 
where you are going to engage in a high stress environment. So that's everything from someone who is trying to kill you on a, on a battlefield, some sort of an enemy, um, to a criminal subject who is resisting arrest. It could also be a, uh, a normal experience that you have with your spouse or significant other where you fail to normally respond because you're emotionally triggered by their reaction and then things go sideways. So you can pre-plan and mentally prepare for certain situations and you'll find that your outcomes are significantly closer to what you would hope they'd be because you've thought about them before. But they have to be pretty specific and you have to really engage in you know, envisioning where you're going to go, what's gonna happen next and what your actions are. And I think a failure to do that on a lot of different workplace um, conflicts that we are gonna engage in, whether it be about COVID-19 vaccines or testing, whether it be about um, someone trying to enforce an illogical mask mandate, uh, whether or not they have the authority to do so, whether or not it's right, um, the things that are gonna happen when someone tries to put something down on your kids, whatever that may be they're asking you to do. This uh, mental preparation is critical. And I'm gonna kinda tease a little bit about how I, I do that because I do it a lot. And uh, part of it came from being an agent on surveillance a lot. So there's really two different types of FBI agents on surveillance in my experience. There are the the kind that sit and watch Netflix or read a book. And I think they open themselves up to a lot of dangerous situations by doing that. That's the minority. So just for your awareness. Uh, and then the other kind is constantly engaged in the mental battle of what happens next and what will I do if it does. I've been in the car by myself in the dark where someone tried to open the door handle at three in the morning while we are off away from a target. And if you don't have a pre-planned response to that, your response is going to be the same as everybody else's, which is panic. But if you do know what you're going to do, then you engage in that protocol. And so that may be you know, any number of responses from unholstering a weapon to making a, a quick radio call to make people aware of your situation to shining a flashlight at them from inside, et cetera, et cetera. And, or you know, roll the window down and have that conversation, whatever it may be. Um, but if you're not prepared for that, then you're going to be stuck with uh, flat-footed inaction. And I think the reason why so many people are not coming forward is twofold. Number one, they haven't mentally prepared for what's coming for them. That's part of it. And the other is that we, as a nation, have not prepared to receive those people. And that's going to kind of mirror what uh, my friend Phil said. So um, kind of a mental exercise for you. Many of you probably carry a, uh, a weapon, a concealed weapon uh, with a permit or as you know, constitutional carry if that's allowed in your state. And the purpose of that weapon is to defend yourself and others in a lawful way. This is going to go whether you're a law enforcement officer, whether you're a concealed carry, you know, whether you have a shotgun by your back door. It doesn't really matter to me. But the question is, is how many of you have gone through the mental exercise of what happens and when that that trigger point is that you may have to use that weapon? And I think that's where the failure happens for a lot of people. You'll see people draw a weapon and they're not prepared to use it. Um, and in contrast, when we see people who are prepared to use a weapon because it's necessary to save or preserve life, um, it's very impressive. I mean, it's really, it sets the standard for what we expect of ourselves. But how did they get there? They went through a lot of training. They went through a lot of preparation. And they went through that mental trigger point that was going to move them to that next step. Uh, I'm reminded of an of a officer-involved shooting video I saw very recently where this guy pulls up. You know, he's a part of the containment uh, perimeter. He's not directly nearby the subject. 
Um, there's been a bunch of different videos reacting to it, so I won't I won't belabor it too much. But he puts his coffee cup down. He goes through the actions that he has in his mental checklist. He opens up the rear. He pulls out his weapon. He uh, chambers around. He sets himself up with uh, a radio call and then directly engages the subject from behind a barricaded position on the uh, the passenger side of his vehicle at 180 plus yards. He takes one shot and then he appropriately states what that was. He says, you know, shot fired, not even shots fired. They already knew that shots were being fired by the subject. So he's very specific and says shot fired, subject down, and then he calmly approaches the subject. Um, some of that is just really, really encouraging to watch because it shows that we have these law enforcement officers who are doing the thing they need to do. They put themselves in harm's way. And more importantly, they get out there in front of the public and they ex- you know, execute the, uh, the tasks that are in front of them in a way that I think we can all be envious of. I used to teach uh, brand new paramedics who were coming on uh, in the ambulance company, and I, I acted as what they call a preceptor for a little while. And as a preceptor in the Air Force, I'm sorry, in the, <laughs> in the Air Force, as a preceptor in the, uh, the paramedic programs I worked in, what we would always do is we would run all of our, our new paramedics who were recently certified through sort of checklist medicine, you know, mental checks. And we would prepare, you know, prepare them as we went through calls, what might be coming next and getting them to think about it when we got the original dispatch, then we get additional information. We want to know where their thought process is. And by doing that, you're preparing for whatever you're going to see on scene. And I used to joke with people and say, what's the first step every time you get on the scene? And it's a national standard that everybody should say the word scene safety, which is means they're going to consider the safety of their crew, of the patients, of bystanders, and so on. Um, and that goes everything from vehicular traffic to whether there's a hazard from a chemical or there's an active shooter or whatever it may be. But I would say there's something that's before scene safety, and that's panic. I used to joke about it because everybody is going to be overwhelmed by events at some point in time. So if you just put it into your plan that you're going to be overwhelmed initially, that's fine. So I would say the first step is panic and then get a hold of yourself and then assess the scene and move on and do your treatments. And I think that's relevant for a lot of these things. If somebody asks you a question that you're not prepared for, panic is a reasonable option in a very, very light and short term. It may be a brief, you know, it might be milliseconds, but The idea that you were unprepared for this, you didn't see it coming, and so a quick panic moment where you look around, size up the scene, and then get to work. And that work may be saying whatever it needs to be. So I think it's really important that we talk about mentally preparing for all of these situations. And so when we look at the uh, the scenario that Greg Hahn was in in North Carolina, how many other people in that jury room agreed with what he was saying and didn't want to wear a mask either and didn't believe that there was any value in wearing a mask. I think at this point, many of us have realized that it's pretty performative and it's uh, and it's not a public safety move, not in any meaningful way. It may have some nominal value to you, but I think as a human being and, and a citizen of this country, we should all have to be able to accept our own degree of risk. So we look at this Greg Hahn scenario. He walks in. He says, no, where were the eight people behind him? And it may have been more who also thought that wearing a mask was a, was an absurdity, particularly if the judge thought it was not necessary for his own safety. Well, who was he to say that, that another free citizen should be putting on something that's essentially a costume? If he had told you that you had to wear um, some sort of a religious garb, you wouldn't wear it necessarily. I mean, if they told you you all had to put on a Star David or you all had to put on a, uh, a job or something else that was outwardly representative of a belief structure, I think many people would resist that in a different way. So 
why was this mask any different? And I think it's because people had not prepared to co-sign on what one brave person decided to do. And more often than not, we are not called upon to be the original actor. We may not be the one who has to step up first and say the thing that has to be said, but we better be prepared to back that person up. Uh, anyone who's gone through any kind of military or even healthcare training about what, what a mask does and what it doesn't do um, should be very well aware that the size of a viral particle is far too small for a paper mask to do anything about, and droplets all become um, you know, smaller and smaller as they're breathed upon, and then you're going to be moving viral particles around. There's no studies that I've seen that said that masks were particularly effective. So we're in this sort of dangerous zone where we're doing performative theatrical art that we may not agree with. And when the right person stands up and says, listen, I don't agree with this. I am not going to do this thing. Nobody backed him up and he went to jail by himself. I think the judge would have had a much more difficult time sending eight or 10 people to jail for the same thing. If 10% of your jury pool is sent out that way, that's a much more complicated decision. And, and for all we know, based on the fact that the judge wasn't wearing a mask, he didn't have a ton of faith in it either. Why he was choosing to make people do it is beyond me, but it doesn't really make a difference in this case. So I think that's really important. And that's going to lead into something I want to talk about probably tomorrow. Um, I'm going to be sharing a lot more data about my situation because people have been asking. And I think that I'd rather expose it to the court of public opinion and let people make their own decisions about what what I did and why I did it. Um, My suspension was related to a very similar type of scenario. And that was when I engaged with a law enforcement officer, a local law enforcement officer in New Mexico, who I have no problem with personally. I don't think he did anything wrong. And um, I don't think he thought I did anything wrong. But it resulted in my suspension from the FBI, which I think was under false pretenses. But I'd let it, I'm going to let everyone else make their decision on that. You can watch it. You can see what I think and why. But what I did do is I made a decision before he came up to talk to me exactly what I was going to accept from him. And uh, what I was doing was shooting in the desert in a place where I was legally allowed to shoot and in a way that was safe and lawful. And he asked me to stop. And I knew he might do that. And so my mental preparation before he walked up to me was that under no circumstances was I going to give up that ground. And it wasn't because it's really important that I continued shooting on that particular day. The reason was because it's really important that Americans have their civil liberties not infringed upon by law enforcement representing authorities that they don't have. And if an FBI agent with a gun and a badge and a lot of professional equipment, I mean, I was out there with thousands of dollars worth of training equipment, whether it be my steel targets and my stands or, um, you know, my truck, which is actually set up just specifically for range day. And, you know, I probably had over a thousand dollars worth of gear on my belt and so on. All those things tell you that when you look at me, I'm not a threat to a law enforcement officer. I've got a badge sitting on the belt at the time. And, you know, he knew exactly who he was walking up to. He wasn't threatened or concerned. But he still asked me to leave and do something different, politely. If I can't say no as an FBI agent, as a federal agent who knows what the authorities are and knows what the law is, then how easy will it be for anyone else to do so? And so I'm going to share that interaction so you guys can do that. But I want you to mentally prep for what are the situations that you might see in your day 
that will allow you to be mentally prepared to respond the way that you would hope you would. And you don't do the thing that I find that my wife always comes and tells me, I wish I would have responded differently. If I could have, I would have done this. It's very classic, you know, kind of teenage theory where it's like, yeah, you know, I would, I would have done this and I would have done that. Well, you didn't. So why didn't you take those changes, take that moment, get corrected. And um, I think we all can do better at it. But uh, that's the reason why we're not seeing FBI whistleblowers come forward. Their fear is, is that they're not going to be supported in the same way. And I'm very thankful for everybody that's been following me. All the, the well wishes I've gotten many, um, the prayers that have come in and, uh, you know, the participation in the, the Give, Send, Go that we have, that's also really, really humbling. Um, I know that Steve Friend has felt the same way, and I've got several friends who are not yet named, but uh, they have been experiencing your support through your support of me and, and, and through Steve. So th- that's not to say that people are not supportive, but it is to say that that's got to be part of the calculus that people are seeing. And the first person through the door is always the most likely to get hit. So maybe the first and the second. So when that's the kind of case that we're dealing with, I think a lot of people have, uh, rightly so, have a lot of fear about what would happen next and what will they do and what sort of environment will they be walking into? How will they be received? And um, hopefully, you know, over the next few months, we see that environment show itself to be more permissive and accepting and we give uh, folks an opportunity to stand forward and say these things they don't a lot of them don't want to lose the the fbi career Uh, for me that was a hill that was worth dying on but that's not necessarily the case for everybody especially if they're in the middle of doing some investigation that's very important both to them personally but to what they believe is going to be really effective of helping their community i had a conversation literally last night about it and the statement was is that this may you know disrupt a lot of cartel activity in the area i'm in there's a a rico statute case and those are pretty complex and they take a long time to build when that's happening that's a hard thing to give up too because they're now they're looking at what's the greater good um so that's why some of them have chosen to you know maybe disclose things to congress and, and you're not hearing them so i do want you to be aware that there probably will be more people coming forward but they have to do it on a timeline that makes sense and doesn't necessarily disrupt the other goods that they're doing. And there are plenty of people doing good. That's that's the advantage and the disadvantage when you hear about one you know prominent case per week. But there are literally thousands of cases being worked. And some of them are probably as, as worrisome as you would think they are. And some of them are uh, exactly what you want the FBI to be doing. And so... Um, I appreciate everybody's patience. I appreciate you listening. I'd love to see what your comments and your questions are. I'm going to try to add those for future videos and maybe a little bit more frequent on sending these things out. Um, Thoughts that you're having that you want me to address, I want to put them together and and give a reflection on them, but also to to make this more interactive that way. So uh, thanks for your attention and your time. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and Truth at Kyle Serafin.